and everyone, welcome to Manufacturing Hub. I'm Dave with my co-host up here, Vlad. We have a very exciting episode today where we're going to continue to talk about our, uh, our theme, which is robotics. And I mean, who doesn't love robots? So our guest today, Ilian Bonov, is going to talk about a number of things from his background as a professor to literally the world's smallest industrial robot, which he at some point, I promise, will once again pick up in his hand. And you guys can take a look at it over his shoulder at the moment. Uh, but without further ado, Ilian, welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. Yeah, thank you, Dave, for having me. Thank you, Vlad. Thank you so much, Ilian. Uh, as we always get started, and as Dave alluded to, we'd like to know a little bit more about your background and how you got into manufacturing robotics and where you are today. Yeah, so I'm, um, I'm a professor at uh, the ETS, teaching uh, robotics, doing research in robotics. And um, uh, basically, I've been at the ETS, which is one of the biggest uh, engineering schools in uh, Canada. Uh, in Montreal, so it's a French-speaking university, and um, I came there like uh, 18 years ago, and honestly, at that time, my, uh, my research was mainly in uh, parallel robots, so you've probably heard about delta robots, this kind of uh, hexapods, you know, the kind of robots that displace um, uh, motion simulators, flight simulators, and uh, the way I got involved in industrial robots is really because at, um, at our engineering school, it's a very, very uh, application-oriented uh, school. Uh, most of our students are already technicians. And um, today it's probably not uh, a big deal, but uh, especially 20 years ago, we were really the only ones to have like a very big industrial robot lab for teaching industrial robotics. Uh, but even today, we, we still have like um, uh, four big industrial robot arms and uh, four smaller ones from ABB, Yumi Collaborative Robots. So basically, we have a lab with eight industrial robots to teach uh, wow. students industrial robots. And this is how I, I got into industrial robots um, in um, industrial robot arms, basically. And eventually, I, um, I had uh, big funding uh, to purchase lots of different robot arms from Fanuc, from ABB, from Kuka, uh, Motoman, and so on. And then later, collaborative robots. And, um, and this, this is how I started, you know, doing research into industrial robots. And mostly, this research was about how to make them more accurate, so it's about uh, precision robotics, how to make, uh, uh, how to calibrate industrial robots, and, uh, but, but there are different, different uh, research topics about optimization, for example, how to make optimal use of industrial robots and so on. So yeah, this is kind of my background. And Ilian, as a small side note, I guess, you know, from ETS, there's quite a bit of innovation that came out, and we'll talk about Mechademic in a moment, but there's also even RoboDK. I don't know if uh, I would assume our listeners are familiar with that software that's stemmed out of there, right? So there's quite a few, I would say, innovation pieces in terms of robotics that came out of ETS. Uh, so it's, again, a very interesting place to be. I, I personally went to Concordia, so I don't think it's at the same <laughs> level. Uh, as at the S from a technical standpoint, so I'm, I'm very happy to have someone 
uh, from their so, um, so Roblox K is, uh, is basically a spin-off from uh, my lab. It was um, developed by Al uh, Albert Nubiola, who was one of my first students working on robot calibration. And, uh, but there is also, um, there is also Kinova, uh, who uh, are well known for working on the, um, uh, more research robot arms, uh, also medical uh, robotic arms. Uh, but soon they will reveal their first um, collaborative robots. Uh, so Kinova is also a, a spin-off from ETS. And you probably know if you, if you have kids, if you buy, uh, if, you, if you are a hobbyist, uh, you probably know the robot shop, robot shop yes. uh, which is also um, a big marketplace. It's a big marketplace for robots, uh, for different types of hobby robots. Uh, I think you can even buy some smaller industrial robots or at least industrial robot drippers anyway. And it's, it's also a spin-off from uh, our department at uh, the ETS, product, automated production department. Oh, it's, it's really cool. I think, again, a lot of uh, really good innovation came out of uh, yeah. ETS. But in terms of, you know, Ilian, I want to, I would say, get a perspective from you on how the education in robotics changed, you know, over the last 20 years. So, you know, maybe taking us a little bit back, how did you, or what was the learning curve in robotics versus what you see today? Do you think that, you know, with the advancements in technologies, has it been made easier for students to learn? Has it made it more complex because there's so many different platforms? What is your perspective in terms of educating, I would say, the new workforce on robotics? Yeah, to be honest, I always, there is so much going on. I mean, maybe for the first, I don't know, 10 years, I didn't have to update very often my, uh, my PowerPoint presentation. Uh, but uh, for the last six, seven years, I've been doing it like almost every semester uh, because there are so many new, you know, the collaborative robots, companies like Macademic, uh, so many, you know, innovations. Um, but, um, but at the same time, I, I would say, yeah, there are different types of robots, but it's uh, still the same technology. So, you know, I, I still teach inverse kinematics, Euler angles, direct kinematics, that's the same. And um, even today, um, uh, you know, I, I still have to teach those things like singularities because um, uh, robots are still, I wouldn't say dumb, but, you know, they, they don't uh, have to compensate, you know, uh, with knowledge to know how to use them in an optimal manner. So even though some, some robots today, as I said, my students, you know, okay, I agree. You, you can buy a collaborative robot today and you don't have to follow my course. You will be able to program it in five minutes. But you will be able to do just simple applications like pick and place. But if you want to do something more complex, if you want to use the robot in an optimal manner, you have to follow my course because otherwise you will have no idea what a singularity is. You will have no idea how to define the, I don't know, you know, the end effector of your, um, the reference frame, the tool reference frame of your end effector. So, um, so this will never change. And probably one thing that changed especially with the COVID crisis, is um, 
you know, we, we, we use ABB robots. So we, uh, we use the robot studio software. And um, before COVID, I didn't that much re rely on it. Uh, but, you know, with, the, uh, with, the, with us being confined for at least uh, two semesters, I think, uh, and we kind of, um, uh, let's say, used uh, robot software like RoboDK or Robot Studio much more. So that's probably something that changed. And today, even though students, they always prefer to come in class and use the real mm -hmm. robots, I always tell them that, you know, all these things that I teach, like inverse kinematics and the different configurations, you can easily uh, those when you use a, a software, simulation software. So you should continue to use this software. So probably that's the main thing that changed uh, for the last years in terms of teaching. So now you can use, you know, advanced uh, simulation software. Uh, but the rest, yeah, I still have this almost the same lecture notes. I just have to update them with, you know, new, uh, new robots that come up. But uh, the theory is still the same. It's interesting, you know, that you mentioned on that last point that students are a lot more exposed to simulation software. And I think it would be important or interesting at the very least to see the data on how they perform in the marketplace, right? Because on one side, you could argue that exposure to real robotics make makes a little bit more sense. But on the other side, in simulation, you can do probably a lot more and be exposed again to a lot of different brands. You can probably do motion that, again... Uh, you wouldn't be able to do in a lab. And at the same time, you could probably teach a lot more people than, again, you can probably not purchase a robot per student. So there's always these, I would say, logistical constraints. But I think it's going to be interesting to see what the feedback from the manufacturers are going to be, uh, I would say, like at the end of the pandemic, hopefully, um, with, the, with the new workforce. But, um, you know, in, in terms of maybe the transition to mechademic what was the um and I, I would say i guess let's introduce it before we dive into the transition what uh what are you doing today with mechademic on that side um in, in terms of simulation software no i would say in general so could you maybe give yeah. us a little more information as to what mechademic does and provides yeah sure so basically mechademic was um I had the chance to uh, to meet this uh, brilliant student, Jonathan, who is the CEO of um, Academic, And initially, he had a very, very unorthodox background as a machinist. And then he came to ETS to pursue a degree in electrical engineering. So he, uh, he already designed uh, robot arms in his pastime and so on. And, uh, and I hired him for designing different parallel robots, uh, which was something I was doing. And so the first, um, uh, the first uh, product of Mechademic was actually an educational parallel robot, which was really very, very original. But uh, we very quickly saw that the market is very small for educational robots. And also at the same time, I must agree that... Um, you know, you might, teaching students, you might as well use robots that are actually present in industry, not some kind of invented uh, robots, which are interesting to study, but, you know, they don't have a direct application in industry. So, um, and it was also uh, Jonathan's dream to design 
a real sex axis robot. So, uh, yeah, I, I agreed with him, even though I, I, at the beginning I, I thought like, wow, that's so ambitious. You know, how can you uh, do something better than, you know, all these companies that have like uh, almost 50 years of experience. But then uh, I saw he came up with this uh, little guy uh, and <laughs> I changed my opinion very quickly because, um, of course, the first prototype was not perfect. It had bugs. Mm-hmm. It was, but even, even, uh, even though it was not perfect, it was already so much better than other robots in terms of um, compactness. It was extremely compact, uh, extremely precise, of course, because it uses the same technology as bigger robots, but it's much smaller, like harmonic drive gearboxes, uh, speed reducers. And um, so very compact and very, um, very precise. And then um, since Jonathan was, uh, you know, he had this background as a machinist and electrical engineering, and he was not kind of um, overexposed to uh, the current industrial robots in my lab. And so he had like a new, new um, vision of how, you know, industrial robots should work. And at the same time, I, I, I I told him, you know, the minimum of what an industrial robot should do and so on. So then it, then we came up with this third advantage of our, of our robot, which is not only small and precise, but also kind of um, as a component, you know, easy to use. Not the same kind of easy as uh, collaborative robots. Like you don't, you cannot program everything from scratch. Uh, but it's easy in the sense of a component. So you just plug it uh, to a laptop or to a PLC and then use the kind of programming language you are used to or even the, 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 uh, the kind of communication protocol you're familiar with. And then you can you just use a set of commands to make the robot move. So you don't have to do all the inverse kinematics or whatever. It's, it's still the same as, an, as a typical industrial robot, like uh, move, uh, lean, uh, moves, uh, joint, and so on. But um, all the other logic, like uh, if, then, else, and so on, you do it in your uh, programming language of choice. And you don't have to learn you know, a whole uh, environment, like uh, in the case of... It's not only the programming language, it's also the, you know, the teach pendant interface, the, the, the software you need to install on your PC. And so it's kind of um, like the, the uh, uh, really a component, motion component. It's still a robot. It still has the, you know, all the motion planning and everything, uh, but it's uh, kind of, uh, it's all the essentials, all the essentials. And that that's, and that's also something which is, um, at the same time, it's normal. You know, when a company starts, they don't start with everything, you know, and they start from the beginning and then add stuff. Uh, but um, we are very, very careful not to add too much layers of stuff because that, that's the way, you know, other industrial robots became so complex to use because, you know, every time a client asks, for some feature, oh, I would like to do this, I would like to do that. So you add, you add, you add, then you come up with an idea, oh, let's do a seven axis robot, 
But then, oh, we never thought about how, how do we control the seven taxes. So let's let put it in this variable, even though it was not designed for this. Uh, so this is this is how you know in industrial robots today are became so much complex to use because I remember when I started teaching, we used very, very old Fanuc robots and they were easier to use. You know? so, um, so I guess it's kind of inevitable, you know, one, after 50 years of adding stuff. Um, but um, we are very, very careful about, you know, what we add to the robot. And sometimes, you know, we know, okay, okay, I know this is very, very useful feature, but if we add this for 1% of our clients, it will make life more difficult for, you know, 80% of the clients. Mm -hmm. So we'd rather limit ourselves than make, you know, all whistles and bells and head notes. Mm -hmm. And Ilian, if I may follow up on that, you know, I'd be really curious because I think very few people have the, I would say, the privilege to go through the design phase of a new robotic arm nowadays, right? And so looking at someone who has, I would say, seen integration projects, and I think a lot of our audience has probably been involved in programming different robotic arms, and some probably realize the complexity that goes into a robotic arm, but I'm curious to hear from you you know, what were maybe the top three challenges in that process? And it could be, again, it could be on the software side. I would assume sourcing the right materials is going to be also different. I believe Mechademic also manufactures the ARM components, right, like in, in Montreal. So I'm wondering, you know, what were the, um, again, the challenges designing uh, a robotic ARM from scratch uh, in that way? Yeah, well... Um... Yes, you're right. We are basically uh, one thing that sets us apart is that we um, we we design and we manufacture most of the the, the parts here. Like of course the the the, the casing, everything here it's machined. Uh, we we don't hear it right now. The machine it's top, but it's uh, we have like. Uh, three machine tools. Uh, one of them, it's a really very complex five-axis machine tool. It's like uh, almost one million, I think it costs, uh, with a Skyra robot that uh, displaces the jigs and everything. So we do, and, wow. and we are based in downtown Montreal, which is very, very, you know, <laughs> special. Um, so we, uh, we machine the parts. We, um, uh, we even do the electronic, the electronic cards. We um, wow. assemble them next door like literally five meters away from me. Um, and we, uh, we, we developed even the drives of the motors we developed. We, um, so most of the things are developed by us and everything software-wise, uh, we, we don't buy li uh, libraries, you know, even uh, stuff like, I don't know, Profinet or um, Ethercat, we, we design everything from scratch even though you can easily buy, you know, this and uh, pay a license fee. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, so, yeah, these are the challenges because we, we have to develop everything from scratch. Uh, otherwise, I would say uh, for me as a professor, I was never involved in, you know, for me, it's like, oh, you do the inverse kinematics and that's it. But no, you, there are so many things <laughs> like uh, uh, path planning and uh so many different layers of i'm not even aware like i've been involved a little bit in the web interface 
but that, that's nothing like uh, compared to what's inside like inside the controller uh it's it's, it's from even for me as a professor it's like a black box you know it's uh, so uh we like we the r&d team we had to discover this you know nobody in our r&d team had any experience with uh building rubbles before you know so we uh, we had to to learn by ourselves and um and that that that's definitely challenging for a small team yeah absolutely and i would assume that there's probably not that much open source information right on designing robotics because i think a lot of these companies obviously once you yeah. design it you want to to some degree keep it uh in the private space so i, I don't think there's that much you can leverage of existing information. Dave, before we go down the technical path, as I have many more questions, is there anything you'd like to chime in on? Uh, absolutely, Vlad. I appreciate it. And so, Ilian, I love as you kind of like talk about the path. So Vlad said that he had met you guys at Megademic a number of months ago, and you guys have this tiny robot. And my first thought is, why would anyone buy a tiny robot? Like I, when I think of robots, I think of the big, you know, orange Kuka Titan, right? Or, or the big white Mitsubishi uh, uh, <clears throat> welding robots, something like that. And then last week we had a very interesting conversation with our guest who talked about lots of people using cobots because they're smaller and you could run them with less kind of safety equipment and you could fit them in tighter spaces. And I feel like this is a very interesting conversation. And I'd love to know more about some of the applications you guys find yourselves in. Like, So you were just picking up the robot as we were talking. And it seems like yours is the robot that if I have an existing application or I need to, to move something, but I don't have very much space, you guys are who I would use. So what sort of interesting applications does Mechademic find themselves using because your robot is so small yeah so it's um it's it, it's um it's really by chance that we came up with this idea it was like uh honestly uh we were still at the ets and uh jonathan wanted to design a robot and so of course it's easier to design a small robot than start with a big robot it's mm -hmm. cheaper and um and uh, the gearboxes, everything was uh, more affordable. Uh, but then, um, then uh, once this was done, it, we were like, wow, it's, um, if you go to my lab and then look at all these robots, even the smaller ones, they still have these big controller boxes, like a big mm -hmm. desktop PC, and then big cables, and then uh, big uh, teach pendants, and... Um, and then sometimes for, for many applications, it doesn't make sense because it just kind of uh, displays uh, small uh, screws or small uh, pinions or whatever for the watchmaking industry. And you can probably fit uh, this big robot, but it's, um, it just doesn't make sense, you know, because uh, usually in, in all these applications where I see our robots, they, they, I don't really see how they can they fit like a bigger one. And mm -hmm. it's more, I, I would say our competitors are not bigger robot arms. It's, uh, it's really like custom made uh, okay. linear guides, uh, a couple of linear guides with some rotary um, uh, stage. Um, 
so it's uh, they, they don't have like people they don't have space so what, what kind of examples i mean the applications that our robots uh, do most of them are are not very uh, you know uh, nothing very very original it's just small parts like let's say instead of palletization you display uh, dental implants or uh, catheters or um, or uh, for the watchmaking industry, very, very small um, uh, gear, gears. It's not called gears, but yeah, something like this. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, of course, from time to time, we have some very original applications. Like, for example, NASA is trying to use our robot for uh, micro manipulation of extraterrestrial samples, like basically uh, dust or, I don't know, Mars. You know? <laughs> Lunar rocks, whatever. Um, uh, or we have our very, very first client was actually a Montreal company that uses the robots for microsurgery of, um, of lab animals. Interesting. Uh, but most applications are very, very simple. Uh, I mean, simple, it's, it's, I, I wouldn't say simple, but very, um, it's challenging because they need precision and everything. But it's, uh, if I show it to somebody who is not in robotics, they will say like, oh, what? The robot is just moving <laughs> stuff from point A to point B. Well, it's not like rocket science or whatever. But it's um, oh, in all these cases, you cannot have a, a human operator because it's really like a very, very small cell. Mm -hmm. Like in watchmaking, you know, uh, it, it doesn't make sense, you know, somebody uh, sitting and just uh, putting these small gears in a, in a, like kidding operations uh, mm -hmm. or uh, so it's, uh, yeah, just small products, just displacing very, very small parts. Um, instead of having a bigger robot, you have this one, which is very, very compact. So that that's it. That's the main, uh, it's as simple as this. They, they buy it because it's very small. And I like the example, before I let like Dave jump back in, I like the example that we talked a little bit uh, off stream, which was the lab work, right? So the robot handling some kind of like a chemical or like, a, I guess, a biological sample and can very precisely and again, repetitively, I think, perform mm -hmm. a task that can be going on for multiple hours. Whereas, again, a human would not be as precise and would probably not want to do something uh, of that nature or even be capable of doing that for long periods of time mm -hmm. but uh no i think those are really good examples i think we don't necessarily intuitively always recognize that just based on on the size alone but they are accomplishing tasks that need to be done sorry dave go ahead no no absolutely and kind of to, to your to both of your points i think that removing a lot of that manual manual manipulation is is a huge positive because I, I know many people who have worked at factories for a decade or a couple of decades who have like lots of carpal tunnel issues from that, that same repetitive motion. So if we could go take, you know, a couple of these robots or a couple of any robots, to be honest, and remove all of that manual manipulation and allow a human to use their brain, what we should hopefully do a better job as, as humans over dumb robots, then it, it should be a win-win uh, for Excuse me. It, it should be a win-win for everyone. Uh, but, but Ilian, so you made a really good point talking about how kind of your major competitors are not necessarily other robot manufacturers. It's people who have kind of 
uh, kind of made their own, right? Maybe we've got a couple of axes and then we've got, uh, you know, a couple of grippers. Uh, I'd love to kind of hear your thoughts, both, I mean, maybe from the um, academic side, right? Like as a university professor, I imagine that you've seen lots of robots. I've imagined that you've designed a lot of your own. Uh, kind of what, what are your thoughts on purchasing a this will work most of the way versus let me custom make a couple of accessing exactly for my job oh yeah that's a very good question so it's um um basically i i, I had two at least two or no actually three uh, uh different situations where i designed this uh well dts we uh well at least i had a lot of funding so I, I, I could build robots um, uh, which were really very, very precise and uh, well-made with lots of students. And uh, in at least two cases, we ended up with uh, some very complex robots that was specifically designed for a given application, like once was um, for um, tele, uh, well, it's uh, for... Um, uh, echography of uh, patients and yeah. it was made for the lower limbs for the legs so everything was designed specifically for that and uh, at the end the robot was kind of flexible and it was very very expensive so in that case for example I just ended up buying um, Kuka's uh, Iwa robot which initially seemed like extremely expensive but then I said it's way cheaper than the, the this monster that I designed. And uh, at the end, you get something which is very precise for the task. Uh, it has uh, force control already. And uh, you can, you can uh, program it in Java. So it's perfect for research. And uh, so this was one uh, example. Then the other was um, we designed this uh, very strange parallel robot, which was... Um, very optimized to have a simple kinematics and uh, so on and with a big uh, back off controller. Uh, so everything was perfect. Uh, machines on five axis, uh, machine tools, uh, everything optimized. And then it was flexible, very, very flexible. And it was huge. And then uh, honestly, the workspace, its workspace was smaller than this guy here. It was less precise, much less precise, and it cost costed probably, I don't know, at least five times more than a make a 500 robot. <laughs> and so I, I kind of, you know, I, I, I gave up and I said, wow, you know, it's, uh, it's much easier to just buy commercially available robots, even though sometimes they seem over-designed for the application, and then you just improve them. Because that, that's the other good thing for me as a researcher is that industrial robots are kind of, um, they have high performance, like very precise, very fast or whatever, very compact. But as I said, you know, they are, you can, you can uh, calibrate them to make them more accurate. You can uh, do optimization to make them more uh, intelligent. Uh, so there are lots of ways you can improve them. And uh, it's uh, so I can still do research. I can still improve, but it's uh, it's so much more affordable to just 
purchase something off the shelf and then uh, improve it or even use it as it is. Like uh, mm -hmm. we, we have so many applications. You look at you look at this and it's like the robot is just uh, picking something and then putting it here. It's like three axis motion. And it's like, oh, why did you buy like a 500? But then, you know, it, you, why? Because I just bought it. It comes in a, in a small box. Uh, it takes like one week. No, maybe not even one week, two days to deliver. You plug it, you program it with whatever programming language you want. And that's it. Now, imagine if you had to design this by yourself. Uh, you can do it, but it, it will definitely take months. And, uh, and yeah, okay, if you have like... Uh, 100 machines, it's probably worth it to design something specific. But if it's only for two or three, five machines, it's uh, even though you only need three axes or four axes of motion, it's still more affordable to, at the end, to buy something that seems, you know, over-designed uh, and just program it quickly and that's it. So, uh, yeah, industrial robots... Um, six x robot arm it's not it's not you know when i teach my students and i always tell them you know these six axis robot arms it's like what's it's about 60 percent of industrial robots are six axis robot arms it doesn't mean that you know uh, you always need six degrees of freedom it just means that it's uh, it's always you know just better to buy um, a six axis robot and then use it as a five axis or four axis than to you know, sometimes I even show my students like five axis robots. And then I say, why people buy this? Because you only have one or two models of this and you probably don't even save money, you know? So why not just buy it? You know, like sometimes you, you've probably seen these big cooker robots, six axis Titan robots, they do just politicization. So I say to my students, well, why do, they, why do people use them for politicization? Because there are no palletization robots that can lift 1,000 kilos. So that's why it's cheaper to, to, to buy something that seems uh, over-designed than to, uh, you know, to ask to design like a 1,000 kilo palletization robot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I was, I, go ahead, Dave. I, I was going to say absolutely. And just to kind of add one uh, point to, to what you were saying, Ilian, is uh as we call it kind of like tech debt you know if i'm going to go design something as a one-off that means hopefully i'm always at the facility because when it breaks th there's one or two people in the entire world who are able to go fix that thing maybe at 100 to your point it makes sense to design and produce a hundred and then train everyone to that but I would say maybe not all, but nearly every single pro prototype line or we bought the first of the kind of the line uh, that I have seen in industry, everyone always has problems with it because they haven't worked the, the kinks out. So if you only need two axis, but you can go buy a six axis robot for about the same price and you yes. can program it, then you know it's going to work. And if there's an issue, then you can call on 60% of the industry that deals with the six access robot, as opposed to the one person who designed built for nearly the same cost, the, uh, the robotic cell that you currently have. Yeah. And Ilian, as a follow-up to that, uh, to that comment, I think it's, 
interesting to also discuss optimization because I think, you know, you've mentioned it a couple of times, but in many instances of robotics, and again, based on my experience, what I've seen in food and beverage is that you can probably get, I would say, 60 to 80% of the way with a very simple uh, solution, right? So you can probably move a box from point A to point B, but a lot of time, and I would say a lot of effort is required to get it to where uh, you have an optimized process and that can play a huge role in like a manufacturing process. And again, I know that Dave has a continuous improvement background and he probably has a ton of examples of this but from the robotics standpoint, again, you want to reduce that, let's say, transition time. You want to make sure that um, everything is programmed to the point where that's not your bo bottleneck in the system. I was wondering if you had some more thoughts or even examples of optimizations that you've seen uh, in your... Oh, yeah. Experience. So it's... Um, I, I don't know what kind of percentage of applications are very simple, like just uh, handling stuff. But even if it just it seems like handling unless it's really only from point A to point B, but even from point A to point B, if it's machine tending, it's, you don't need to optimize too much because the, 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 the tending part, it's like, I don't know, 1% of the whole cycle time, of the mm -hmm. production cycle time. But for many other applications, even if it's all, all, always from A to B, you can still... Because as I say, my, as I tell my students, industrial robots are not, uh, six-axis robots are not Cartesian robots, which means they are not homogeneous. You know, their performances are not the same. Like their workspace is six-dimensional. And in the different parts of this workspace, they have different properties. So from point A to point B, uh, if, you, if you do this or this, it's not the same cycle time. But, you know, of course, robot manufacturers, they, they want us, we want uh, people to think that industrial robots are as simple as, you know, especially <laughs> cobalt manufacturers, they will say, oh, you just press a press here and then you teach here and then you teach here and that's it. Which is okay if it's machine tending, but if it's something, you know, more critical, you, you need to do more than just teach here and teach it because, um, and I, I show this to my students, you know, they, if, if, you, uh, if you decide to pile your blocks, because we just pile blocks here instead of here, then uh, if you put two blocks, it works. But then if you put three blocks, then the third block is, uh, uh, the robot is near a singularity. So it's kind of very slow and so on. So it's, um, you, you really, if you want to optimize the cycle time, you need to do a lot of trial and error. Unfortunately, you know, for most engineers, um, they don't have the right tools to do this optimization uh, correctly using, I don't know, genetic algorithms or whatever. Um, but at least I, I tell my students that you should be aware and you should at least, especially now with, uh, with uh, simulation tools like uh, RoboStudio or even RoboDK, uh, you can simulate, so just, um, you know, discretize your workspace or whatever, and then simulate um, where is the, the, the best, uh, where you can get the best cycle time or where the robot is most um, rigid, for example, if you're doing machine, if you're doing uh, machining with the robots. And uh, to give you probably a couple of examples where I, I, I needed to do a, 
uh, a lot of optimization, complex optimization, uh, which was more like master student level or even PhD student level. So for example, one example is um, uh, somebody was manufacturing uh, masks for military, per, uh, military personnel. And um, so they're doing dispensing now with a robot, huh? but with a single 6x robot, it, it, it was impossible. So you had to either, even with a rotary table and a six axis robot, it was still very difficult. Mm -hmm. So um, imagine if you have this kind of application, if you don't optimize, you will probably end up buying two robots instead of just one robot and a single rotary table. So it's more expensive. And also it will probably be uh, um, less uh, it will probably be slower with two robots instead of uh, one robot and one rotary table uh, another example is a company that was uh, doing inspection for the aerospace industry so basically you have this uh, scanner 3d scanner and you have to inspect a part in uh, let's say 20 different orientations okay so the way they used to do it is just random it's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven—you know, twenty times. Mm -hmm. But then it's similar to the tra uh, to the traveling salesman problem, where you have like uh, different cities and you have to visit all of them. But you need to optimize which is the best trajectory, so you 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 know this you, the distance traveled is minimum. So it's the same here. You instead of doing this and then this and then this. If you do an optimized uh, sequence, then the cycle time will be much faster. But so it's you reduce even... the movement time between the points, right? Essentially, yeah, yeah be okay. because from here to here, it's a waste of time. You're not making any money, and uh, it's even more complicated than traveling salesman. So let's say it's more like a traveling uh, politician, which in every uh, state has to visit at least. Not, not at least, but it, uh, he has to visit one big city. Okay, so, he, you know, the politician has uh, two or three cities as a choice. Um, so what, what are the equivalents in robotics of the cities? It's the different configuration because you can be like this, or you can be like this, or you can, you know, these are the different solutions of the inverse kinematics, the, the configurations. So it, 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 it even becomes more complex, but um, uh, with these different configurations, then you are even more optimal. So that's another example of how you can, uh, or an, uh, then another one is machining. So in machining, you only need five axes, but the robot has six axes. So how do you manage this redundancy in order to be more, to avoid singularities, for example, or to be more, or just to be able to do this because, you know, people, it's easy. You know, if you, if you cannot do this, you just buy a bigger robot. So you can do it for <laughs> sure. Like the, a huge, a huge robot will definitely be able to do uh, the mask um, dispensing I told you about, mm -hmm. but it just doesn't make sense. You know, you, you will not end up buying some huge robot for, I don't know, $150,000. Uh, well, you can do this with a smaller robot, but you need to spend more time, you know, optimizing the workspace and so on. So, um, so yeah, optimization is even more important for for guys like uh, at academic because the robot is very small. 
So um, if you, uh, so sometimes, you know, clients, they ask us, oh, do you have a robot that is uh, five centimeters bigger? <laughs> Tell me what's your application and, and I'm sure I'll be able to, you know, uh, fit it in. It's not like... Uh, or, or the worst is, you know, I, I tell this to my students, like uh, people who ask us, oh, what, what is the reach of the robot? It, you know, it doesn't matter what's the reach because it's, uh, your application is not just doing this, it's doing this and this and that. And this, you cannot describe this with a single number. So you have to simulate in software like RoboDK. And, and RoboDK, by the way, this is a very interesting because in RoboDK, you can use different robots and you can compare, uh, okay, with this one, I can do my task. Uh, and then with a bigger one, I, I cannot or vice versa and so on. So yeah, use uh, simulation software. And it's always better to, to use uh, the smallest possible robot because it's, well, it's more affordable but it's also, it takes more, less space. It consumes less energy. Um, the controller is smaller. So it's, uh, it's easier to do anything with a bigger robot, for sure. It's like having a truck, it's easy to transport stuff, you know, but it's nobody buys, uh, well, almost nobody buys a huge truck for, you know, uh, going on vacation from time to time. So you ah, kind of ah. optimize, uh, okay, I'll buy a smaller car and whenever I have to, you know, go on vacation, I'll probably put a box on my, uh, on my car. And so, yeah, you need to optimize. Otherwise you end up uh, buying a truck every time you need to, you know, move something. Dylan, let me ask I, uh... one question before we dive into this to thank our sponsor, but, um, I picked up on one important point you've made, and that's at the beginning of the statement, which was that a lot of times these optimizations would be done by, you know, masters and PhD students. I'm curious, um, again, obviously, like, obviously you can learn those skills, but what are they on top of, you know, let's say you learn the software, you learn how to program a FANUC robot, or you learn how to program it in RoboDK in a simulation, for example, and you have a I would say a general understanding of, uh, I would say mechanical applications, right? Like what are the skills that you see um, or that you teach at the master's and PhD level that would make them, I would say above and beyond what you would typically expect like before that? What, I would say, what clicks in, uh, let's say if I was to program these robots, what would need to make sense to me to understand how to optimize a lot better than uh, otherwise? Yeah, so well, it's it, uh, on the on the website of Macademic. I have this section called Macademy, where I I kind of make tutorials about singularities, about Euler angles, quaternions, uh, workspace, and so on. So this is the minimum. Like at least um, people should be aware of uh, these limitations of robots, because again, uh, six-axis robots, unfortunately. Um, you know, they're very useful. They have uh, huge performance and so on, but, but they have singularities, they have, you know, uh, limits. And uh, so the, the minimum is to understand those limits. And then if you, if you really want to optimize the robot, well, it's um, at least you can do it just by discretization and then 
a lot of trial and error. So this is the list you can do, like just be able to, to use uh, some kind of um, um, <coughs> software, uh, simulation software, for example, um, in uh, RoboStudio, but I think you can do it in RoboDK, but in RoboStudio, one thing I, I love is that uh, it's been there for many, many years. You can use this uh, virtual reality headset and then with the with the controller, you can grab the end effector of the robot, and then you just kind of move it in the virtual space, and you can awesome. uh, see if the robot can do this or or not. Which uh, you can do this with uh, some collaborative robots, but it's not the same because it's kind of more force. You know, it's it's uh, it's a bit um, more difficult. So. Yeah, just do it by simulation, and then if you really, if if it's really important, then yeah, you you need to learn different optimization techniques. Um, <clears throat> these are just available as uh, open uh, source. Uh, like for example, if you want to do uh, this by genetic algorithms, you can uh, have a library in Python or in MATLAB. So you don't you don't have to be a specialist in everything. Um, <laughs> But other stuff, like if you want to calibrate your robot, that's, uh, yeah, you have to learn different skills for this. But it's more, yeah, it's definitely graduate level. So it's not something you can learn by yourself, yeah. That is interesting. So I actually have a couple of comments on that. So so we, we brought up a bunch of really good conversations on simulation. So if you guys are interested in learning more about simulation, especially uh, simulation on robotics. Go back and listen to the last episode, episode 51 with Max Kirkpatrick. Uh, Max works on simulating robots and robots within lines. And so we had a bunch of conversations uh, around what he's doing there. So I think that that is absolutely uh, worthwhile going and having that conversation or going back and listening to that um, with Max. And then talking about optimization, I think we brought up a lot of really good points. Uh, enough points that we could certainly film more than an entire episode. I, I will just bring up a couple. So when I go out and I look at robotic cells, without saying kind of everything needs to be optimized, I like to go look at them, right? And so you can generally see kind of, as Ilian was saying, if robots are efficient or not, right? So like, obviously, if my robot in the middle of its cycle, like flips all the way to the backside and like twirls around a lasso, we know that it's inefficient. But you can also see that sometimes there are a bunch of additional axie movements that it appears to be hunting, or at least what I would call hunting, right? Like it can't find where it needs to be. And there, there's almost like a hitch in there. And so I would say that that is a good opportunity to look for, hey, how can I make this more efficient? Uh, I'll give one quick example uh, before, we, uh, before we move forward. Um, I, I made this comment uh, to Ilian uh, yesterday or a couple of days ago. So I, I had a client that they make tools. I was playing around with my tool, or I was playing around with the carabiner, kind of similar, right? So it goes through a line, it gets heated, it gets quenched, it goes up a belt, and then there are these five robotics, there are these five robotic arms and it was maybe the most inefficient robotic cell I've ever seen in my entire life, right? All of these arms are constantly hunting. The belt was way too wide. I mean, I could probably list 20 things that was wrong with it. But the, the main point is, like, I go and watch it and I capture, you know, a minute of video. And I go and as I continue to go down and watch, 
every single one of these robotic arms just grabs kind of whatever tool they find coming down to go through the next process. So as you go through, especially if something is your constraint, if you're looking at a robotic cell, you'll certainly see if there are issues with optimization kind of within that cell. And, and as we've discussed, and we'll have to have more conversations on at a later date, um, optimizing, like people want robots, absolutely. I'm not sure I've ever heard of conversations as to are my robots optimized? Like maybe it's, can my robot hit the cycle time that I'm looking for? And as soon as we can check that box, we're done. But just as we check that box, doesn't mean that we have optimized uh, the robotic arm in and of itself. So I think all of those are, are very good points. Uh, thank you for that, Ilian. I'm going to let Vlad go ahead and play, uh, play that note, and then we're going to go thank some sponsors. There you go, Dave. Awesome. So we once again want to thank Siemens for sponsoring the robotics team. What I was thinking about uh, when we were talking with Max last week and this is Siemens is just one of those companies that like seemingly does everything, right? And so the technological tasks in modern machines and plants are diverse and often demanding. It's good to know that there's a smart answer to all challenges regarding motion control, signal position output, closed loop PID control, edge computing, artificial intelligence, and machine learning with cymatic technology and the cymatic technology CPUs. Siemens is the global leader and innovator when it comes to industrial motion, robotic, and simulation applications. Simulation, once again. Um, they are one of the world's biggest investors in technology R&D, spending more than $6.11 billion U.S. dollars per year, which, once again, we just have to take a moment and think, that's a lot of robotic arms, right? Like, even at $100,000 a piece, that's a lot of robotic arms. And they have maintained this investment throughout the pandemic. So the integrated and scalable cymatic technology automation solutions save you valuable engineering time for simple tasks as well as for complex issues and guarantee maximum efficiency and flexibility. This means one engineering framework portal, one with Siemens technology CPU, and one communication for standard automation, safety, and motion control with Profinet. Uh, so I'm going to go ahead and let Vlad point to all of the Siemens uh, currently uh, currently behind him. But it's one of those things that it's if you are working uh, within the ecosystem, any ecosystem, it's always nice to have something that just as seamlessly as possible in this industry uh, goes ahead and connects with it. Um, again, we want to thank Siemens uh, for the support of this theme and the continued support of the community and their show or and, and this show. Um, and, and Ilian, with that, I kind of want to like jump in. We talked a lot about optimization. I think that that's a very interesting future-looking opportunity. C can we kind of get your estimate? Like, where do you think, what is the future of robotics going to be? Yeah, I, I think, um, I think the, the, the next level is like uh, how to make robots more intelligent. Okay. Uh, optimized but honestly I, I don't think this is the this is the job of robot manufacturers I mean we we okay. definitely at Macademic we we definitely um, we work on features that make our robots more um, like more intelligent if you wish like for example one example is um, most industrial robots if not all they don't check for mechanical interferences. So you, you can just job them and they will hit themselves. I mean, 
uh, that's something that can be avoided, you know, or like if you um, if you have a seven axis robot, let's say, and then you uh, you tell the robot to go to a six degree of freedom pose, then the robot you know optimize itself for the seven degree of freedom. So there is some kind of uh, minimum that robot manufacturers should do. There is mm -hmm. still a lot of uh, possibilities, but then um, it's really up to uh, third parties to design software that will take you know information from cameras or whatever different mm -hmm. sensors and uh, and do the optimization or uh, real time optimization. Or if it's not real time, then probably you can use software like uh, I've heard that Siemens is software uh, for uh, robot simulation. It's, it has some advanced feature on optimization. Uh, but, but again, there is no software that can do everything. And I even have an article about this, like uh, artificial intelligence, like uh, there will never be, um, you know, some kind of... Uh, super powerful uh, computer that uh, will kind of always uh, uh, find the best motion from point A to point B uh, because um, it, it's really the installation as well. It's, it's really when you design the robotic cell, the, the whole, uh, it, it's, it's, uh, it's there that you need to optimize. It's not only the robot. So even if the robot is very intelligent, if you put the conveyor very far from the robot, you, you still get a very slow cycle time. So that, that's why I say it's not the job of robot manufacturer uh, to make everything better. It's really the integrators or uh, software that makes simulation, uh, software that makes uh, real-time optimization, like picking parts at mm -hmm. uh, Amazon warehouse, uh, obviously, uh, Again, this is you need some kind of third-party software for this. So I think most of the innovations will come from this, and uh, robot manufacturers will continue to make robots which are faster, uh, smaller, more precise. Uh, but then again, uh, robot manufacturers they don't make drippers, they don't make cameras, mm -hmm. you know. So uh, so innovations will come from uh, other companies as well third-party uh, integrators or uh, software. Now, do, do you think that the large robot manufacturing companies will be willing to accept this additional optimization into their ecosystem? Or do you think that we're going to see a fight from companies who already have robotic software and want to potentially add that on to what they have for an additional fee? Yeah, like if I take uh, RoboStudio as an example, um, <clears throat> there are some, some features which are really advanced, like you can model the cables. Uh, there is even a physics engine, you know, you can drop parts and see them bounce and everything. Uh, mm -hmm. But in terms of optimization, um, that's, that's something that's still missing, I think. Uh, well, I, I know <laughs> for sure. And... Um, so, yeah, some companies that have this kind of software will probably uh, add those features. But, uh, but then again, you cannot do everything because it, there are so many different case um, scenarios that um, you, you cannot think of all different, uh, like 
it, it can be as simple as, uh, you know, when you put a gripper, how do you design, where do you put the gripper? Is it here or here or here? So how can you do this in, uh, in Robo Studio? I mean, it's not, Robo Studio is not made for, you know, designing the base place of your gripper. So uh, things like this, you will never see this in, uh, in general purpose uh, simulation software. Uh, so yeah, I, I don't think you know robot manufacturers will address too much uh, these uh, optimization issues. I was Interesting. Curious. Dave, do you have another question before I no, jump no. in? Go for it, Vlad. I was curious, you know, from a workforce standpoint, right? So right now, I think we're seeing more and more manufacturers trying to optimize their processes because, again, there's a I would say a lack of, uh, of general workforce and they're trying to automate a lot of different components of their business. Are you seeing, I mean, I think it's going to continue at least in the short term, but do you think again, in the long term, we're going to see more and more exponential growth of robotics? And do you think it's going to, I would say with the advancements in software, do you think that's going to require, I would say, more people on the higher end like skill set or more people on like technician and kind of maintenance level where do you see that dynamic play out uh, in the manufacturing space yeah honestly i think like uh, uh, all the low-hanging fruits you know they've been already picked and um, we've seen a lot of uh, uh, robot uh, sales in asia because you know you there are so many simple applications but eventually, you know, um, all these applications that uh, remain to be automated, they are more complex. And uh, you really need uh, engineers for, for these applications, like integrators, uh, designing. Like that, that's, not, that's not even something we, we teach at uh, university because it's so, so much based on practice, how to design uh, an automation system, how to choose the gripper, how to choose the conveyor. Um, so uh, it's not about being technician or engineer, but it's, it's being somebody with a lot of experience. Um, so we'll, yeah, I, I think we'll, we'll see uh, more and more robots, probably not exponential growth, but um, Obviously, like, automation is the way to go. It doesn't make sense to, uh, to, do, to do all these uh, uh, tasks manually. And uh, it's not about stealing jobs. You know, we, we, we lack uh, people to, yep. you know, like in, uh, in some places, you know, they closed the Canadian Tim Hortons, you know, they, they closed it at 3, 3, a, uh, 3 p.m. because they, oh. they don't have personnel. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's uh, yeah. I think that's not always, you know, on that last point, that's not always well portrayed by the media. And I'd say sometimes the old image is that robots are taking jobs, but a lot of times it's, again, even in manufacturing, they simply cannot find enough operators to operate oh, yeah. the line. And I think if anything, it just gives people the opportunity to do something different. And uh, it's, um, again, I think it's, slowly changing but uh we still have that perception of uh, you know robots taking a job of someone but as you said again it's certain jobs that even uh from like a smaller robot standpoint it, it cannot be done by humans i think and it's not replacing humans it's a lot of times just replacing other processes that 
are exactly. a lot more expensive and more complicated to figure out. Dave? Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, my, my only other comment to that is closing Tim Hortons is an affront to the entire nation of Canada. Uh, <laughs> th th that is worst case scenario right there, folks. How are you going to get your coffee fixed? Uh, but no, exactly. so I, I, I think that you brought up some very good points, uh, Ilian. And I think one of your points was we basically need a lot of experienced people that can actually go and install and implement these. And the unfortunately, we can't snap our fingers and have a lot of experienced folks. So we need to bring in experience and maybe mid-career. I understand automation, but I don't understand robotics um, into robotics. So do you have any career advice for those, either people who have seen some robots and think they're interesting, or maybe they've got some experience on the industrial side and are looking to get more hands-on knowledge? Well, yeah, it's, um, I think nowadays there, there is a lot of, a lot of colleges that teach mm -hmm. industrial robots. Uh, so um, um, I, I think it's more and more important to have hands-on experience, not just mm -hmm. theoretical experience. Mm -hmm. uh, so whatever it's uh, vocational uh, training or uh, yep. university, it's, uh, it should be as hands-on as possible. You should always teach the theory but the theory itself is not enough because even like integrating a robot, the theory is good for like optimizing stuff, but like a poor choice of gripper technology, mm -hmm. you can lose, I don't know, several weeks just because you didn't choose the, the right gripper. And this, it's not something that you teach, you learn in a book. You really have to have uh, experience for this. There is no, I always tell my students, you know, when you choose a car, you have all these, um, uh, is it in English, guide de l'auto, uh, guides for, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. for... Car guide. Yeah. yeah, but when you choose a robot or a gripper, there is no such thing. There is no website that uh, no. gives ratings on robots or grippers. So how do you choose this? It's based on experience, based on making errors. So, um, and I'll close with one example. Uh, recently, the technician who is uh, responsible for our robotics lab at the ETS, he retired and we had so much trouble um, finding somebody to replace him. Uh, even though, the, you know, having a secure job at the ETS with pension fund and everything, it's really like, it looks like a dream job, but uh, it, it was impossible to find somebody there. So uh, there's so much, uh, we, we need uh, people with uh, this kind of training everywhere. I mean, the industry, it's, it's, it's uh, so many applications. No, absolutely. I think that that's some good advice. I will say it seemed like a lot of colleges and universities have uh, hands-on experience. Max from last week was talking about the University of South Carolina, and he had, a, in his background, they had four or five or six different robots that were kind of within one large cell that they were able to put together to get some of that good hands-on experience. Uh, so I appreciate that, Elian. So last couple of questions to wrap up. Um, do you have, uh, so, so I know we talked about uh, Mech Academy, I think you called it, where, where you have a bunch of, or Mechademic Academy, where you've got a bunch of information where, where you've written about. Do you have any other either books or kind of posts or, or videos that you would suggest people take a look at? I, either personally yourself or, or things that you enjoy to, uh, to read and consume? I, I would say um, uh, watching YouTube 
videos. It's it's not easy to find them because there are so many YouTube videos which are not really interesting. But um, uh, at the same time, uh, there are so many uh, applications uh, with robots uh, that that you can learn just by watching them. Like um, uh, one of my former students, uh, Jeremy, who is uh, who is application engineer at uh, Robotic So he mm-hmm. teaches the um, robotic sales optional course in my uh, university and he has this kind of list of uh, videos and just watching those videos you you learn so much uh from uh, uh from you know somebody has designed so you know sometimes it can be like um look he by using this kind of mechanical intelligence uh, the person was able to use uh, a simpler robot than uh, using a camera and um, so that you cannot read this in a book you know it's uh, yeah. like once i saw an application with our robot which was basically um, they were just uh, doing this in a mm-hmm. bunch in a uh, in a bin with different parts and when uh, until they succeed dripping apart and they have a camera and check it so you know instead of having something very sophisticated they were just trying one or two times until they get the part so this kind of you know uh, mechanical intelligence you cannot learn in a book so it's really yeah by experience Absolutely. watching uh, watching youtube videos it, it doesn't seem like a very good advice from a professor at the university, but <laughs> you can learn more from no. this than reading a, a book, a textbook. I like that, Eileen. Would it be possible to get that list and we could attach that to the show notes? Uh, could, could you provide us with that list and then we can go ahead and attach them if people are interested on specific yeah, videos? Sure. I'll ask uh, Jeremy, yeah. Awesome. Fantastic. Uh, thank you for that. And then, then the last question, you've been such a fantastic guest, is is who should reach out to you? Who do you want to talk to? Uh, who do you want to connect with? Who should reach out to you? Well, I, uh, as, a, as a university professor, I, as I said, I, I work on uh, everything related to precision robotics, so how mm-hmm. to calibrate robots, how to make them more accurate. And uh, as a co-founder of Academic, of course, uh, everybody who needs like place um, uh, parts or a tool uh, in a very, very restrained, confined space, uh, well, we have uh, our support team, which uh, they can try, you know, if the application is doable or not. And if it's not doable with our robot, we always recommend, you know, uh, other robots or other technologies. So it's uh, if we cannot do it, we just uh, we always try to help. It's not, uh, yeah, even if yeah. it's a competitor. As I said, our competitors are really like custom-made machines. So if if the only way to do it is by custom machine, that that's it. Yeah. No, no, perfect. Um, I, I appreciate that, Ilian. Uh, we appreciate everything. I'm going to cut Vlad off before he asks another three and a half hours worth of questions and uh, save everyone's ears until next week. But no, guys, this is uh, this has been episode 52 of the Manufacturing Hub with me, Dave, and this guy up here, Vlad. We want to thank everyone for being here. We want to thank Siemens uh, for sponsoring this theme. If you have not already, please go ahead and give the thumbs up. Please go ahead and subscribe to our channels. 
uh, please go ahead and subscribe on podcasts. If you guys are listening to podcasts, it helps. And you guys can rate us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and Audible now. If you're one of the three people that listen to, uh, to podcasts on Audible, then we can have one of the three ratings on there. Um, until next week, we want to thank you guys. Uh, thank you guys for being here. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Thank you, everyone.